Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. To live an uncommon life, one needs to learn uncommon disciplines. Divine with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Welcome back. Appreciate you joining me today. Today I've got a solo cast to continue my journey of reading from the newly completely revised and updated pandemic edition of Unbeatable Mind, which I'm calling Unbeatable. It's the Unbeatable edition. And I'm up to chapter two. Title of chapter two is Understanding the Brain and Mind. Here we go. Quote, education, the path from cocky ignorance to miserable uncertainty. Mark Twain. Whether you lead a multinational corporation or a classroom of unruly kids, you'll be more successful by not trusting your brain and learning to use your mind more expansively. There are tools to train both, fortunately, which will streamline and improve your decision making. This chapter focuses on how the brain and the mind work and introduces the core practices that help to develop the brain and the mind. The goal is to be able to access what we call whole mind thinking and utilize decision models to speed up and improve decision-making to break patterns of one-dimensional bias thinking and avoid things like groupthink, procrastination, and analysis paralysis. Frankly, it's fairly easy to be clever, but it takes a lot of work to get to be wise. I've been party to a plethora of clever and complicated plans in the past that outright failed or never got executed. The wise plans and the wise decisions are the simplest with built-in contingencies for inevitable fail points. The brain zoo. I wish I had a dollar for every time that I put my foot into my mouth by jumping to a conclusion, reacting with an unseen cognitive bias, or something like that. I am not alone here, I bet. Eventually, I just simply stopped trusting my high IQ rational brain to make good decisions. And I recommend you do the same. If you Google cognitive bias, which is a concept introduced by Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, we'll come back to him later, in 1972, you'll see a helpful graphic designed by a John Manugian the third. The graphic title is the Cognitive Bias Codex. So it's codifying all the biases, and there's hundreds of them. He categorizes the hundred of the most common, and he breaks them into these four basic categories or conditions. One, having too much information. So information overload. Two, not having enough meaning. So you lack context. Three, needing to act fast. So you jump to conclusions. And four, deciding what should be remembered because you can't remember everything. Interesting, huh? The untrained brain deploys mental shortcuts to save time and energy. In some cases, these are useful, but in most, they lead to suboptimal decisions. See, the human brain has evolved to be a vastly complex and powerful tool, still little understood 
understood beyond the basic building blocks of the functions of the different areas of the brain. Using MRI or fMRI, functional MRI or QEEG and other tools, neuroscientists are able to map areas and their chemical and electrical patterns when you perform certain actions. So different areas of the brain will light up with a chemical or electrical activity when you drive, have sex, react to stress, for instance. The sheer complexity of the brain is staggering. The Western view is that the brain creates the condition of thinking, and we call that mind. That view is that the mind and awareness arise from complex pattern recognition within the brain itself. This reductionist view is not accurate, in my opinion. The more accurate view is that mind exists independent of the brain, but requires the brain to communicate and perceive the material world, just as it requires the rest of the body to move and get shit done. This is an important point to reinforce. In Unbeatable Mind, our training is meant to optimize the physical brain's functioning as well as to teach ourselves to tap into whole mind thinking, which includes the intelligence of the heart mind, the gut mind, and the entire nervous system and body, and also to access the direct perceiving power of the brain, which is part of the brain's capacity. When we achieve this, we then operating from what we call whole mind. I'll give a brief overview of the brain now and the mind later to ground our discussion further. Generally speaking, there's three distinct regions of the brain, and that roughly correspond to an evolutionary view of the human brain's development. The first is the reptilian brain, formed from the brainstem and cerebellum. It's the oldest part of our brain. It's almost identical to a reptile's brain, hence the name. It regulates basic life functions such as breathing, heart rate, and respiration from the brainstem. Balanced posture and movement coordination are handled by the cerebellum. This reptilian brain is also responsible for hardwiring behaviors from our memories. This is where deeply rooted training information is stored and retrieved. It may be safe to assume that this brain is associated with automatic thinking and what is often called the subconscious mind. The second brain is the mammalian brain, which theoretically evolved some 300 million years ago, if you recall. It's called the mammalian brain because it's similar to the most evolved part of any mammal's brain. The activities it handles are fight, flight, or freeze response, the nervous system, and our need to feed and reproduce. It's also responsible for our emotional behavior and regulating chemical and hormonal activity. Of course, this is a simplification. So if you're a neuroscientist, don't shoot me. So when you get depressed or fly into a rage, you can blame your mammalian brain, but you can then thank it for regulating your body temperature, your blood sugar levels, digestion, hormonal balance, and other pretty important things. This mammalian brain hosts the master hormone pituitary gland, which regulates sleep and recovery, as well as the hippocampus, which is your memory sorting and storing tool. The amygdala is the part that filters incoming information for threats and opportunities. This mammalian brain is mostly responsible for the large number of biases pointed to in that cognitive bias codex. The fear wolf spends a lot of time lurking here. The third of the brains is the frontal lobe neocortex, and it's the most recent addition to this brain zoo. This is the command center or executive seat of cognition, which lights up when we reason, ruminate, analyze, and interpret. It's estimated that we have 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day, most of which also occurred yesterday. This is why 
This part, particular brain's contribution is likened to a monkey bouncing from one tree branch to another. This part of your brain's relative recent development differentiates humans from other creatures, giving us such enormous creative and destructive potential. Intention, focus, and willpower conspire to move you toward greatness or misery through this neocortex. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Harness neuroplasticity. The good news is that your brain is not fixed in stone unless you don't do anything. It can be evolved and improved. Concentration, attention control, mindfulness, and witnessing all change, and any type of learning for that matter, all change the underlying structures of the brain, helping the mind be more perceptive and less biased. The brain becomes more supportive to the whole mind, expanding one's perspectives and sense of self. This ability of your brain to change is called neuroplasticity. The EOC Institute published an article in 2020 titled Harnessing Neuroplasticity, Key Brain Regions Upgraded Through Meditation. Let's look at eight of the known ways that the brain is enhanced through neuroplastic effects of the different practices. These translate into massive upgrades and whole mind thinking eventually. One, the parietal lobe becomes overactive when we feel isolated and separated from others and the whole. By making us feel more connected to others and nature, meditation changes this part of the brain to overcome the detrimental effects of loneliness. Two, left and right hemispheres have different functions and are separated by the corpus callosum. Usually one hemisphere is overly developed, which prevents whole mind thinking, leveraging all aspects of mind equally. Meditation strengthens the cooperation between both hemispheres, bringing better focus, creativity, and enhanced memory. Three, depressed individuals show atrophy in the hippocampus. In one study, after only eight weeks of meditation, the left and right hippocampi of study participants had significantly grown in neural thickness, density, and overall size. The neuroplastic effect of daily meditation effectually reverses depression over time and and can protect you from future bouts of the blues. Four, Meditation stimulates and changes the right anterior dorsal insula, which regulates our ability to display compassion toward others. So change your brain and you can change your personality to be more loving and kind. Five, the temporoparietal junction, TPJ, in the brain controls emotional awareness and expression. Meditation strengthens this area, bringing more self-awareness, adaptability, empathy, self-motivation, and emotional balance. Sixth, the amygdala, as noted earlier, is the fear center of the brain. It's responsible for the fight, flight, or freeze response to perceived danger. Meditation and breathing practices can interdict this reactionary conditioning, reducing the size and the negative impact of this amygdala. Seventh, as also discussed earlier, the prefrontal cortex is where we orchestrate our thoughts, make complicated plans, think deeply, and lead to high-level decisions. The landmark 2005 study by Harvard neuroscientist Dr. Sara Lazar found that experienced meditators had a much more neural density 
thickness folds and electrical activity in their prefrontal cortex. And finally, eight, the PONS, P-O-N-S, is the part of the brain that regulates melatonin, sleep hormone. Great deal of our overall well-being depends on getting enough sleep at night. Studies show that meditation develops big, healthy PONS, which combats insomnia and other sleep disorders. These neuroplastic changes don't necessarily need to be understood in order for, to integrate the training and to have the effect, but it does help to appreciate how and why training the brain and the mind has an impact and when and why it doesn't. Here are some ways that we can enhance the effects of neuroplasticity. One, use it or lose it. If you don't use an area of a brain, then you're going to lose capacity there. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Use it to improve it. This is like the converse to that. So if you're using it, you're going to improve it. You're going to grease the groove a little deeper of those neurological pathways. Specificity matters, meaning you, if you're going to learn something, go deep on it and learn with your whole body. Get very specific and you'll have a neuro, powerful neuroplastic effect. Same thing with repetition and intensity and duration. So the more reps you get in, the more intense energy you put into your learning and the more duration or time you put in will all have a strong neuroplastic effect. Age does matter. So it's easier to see improvements when you're younger, and, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't experience benefits when you're older. So when I started training Zen at 20, I was working with a brain that was eager to grow. But like I said, the older you are, the less elastic the brain is and helps, hence more challenging to change. This shouldn't deter you though. Every minute of practice will lead to some growth. The other good news is that when you meditate effectively, you're going to experience better mental health and life just gets better in surprising ways. You're going to be thinking more clearly with the knowledge that you do possess already, and you can perceive and gain new knowledge faster and through the direct transfer of deep observation. You eventually access whole mind thinking when you stick with these practices. Thinking faster and better. In 2000. In 11, economist Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for his work on decision-making bias. His book, Thinking Fast and Slow, provides a remarkable insight into the tricks our brain zoo plays. Kahneman wondered how much control our brain really had over our thoughts and actions, and to what extent the older brains, the mammalian and the lizard brain, governing what we now call the subconscious, impacted decision-making. Kahneman's central theme is that the brain employs two dominant modes of thought. First, he calls system one, which is the fast, instinctual, and emotional thought processes driven by your mammalian and reptilian brains, aka that subconscious. The second, he calls system two, which is what we typically, typically think of as rational thinking. The cognitive skills leading to deliberate, rational, and logical thought processes is system two. Kahneman noted that system one is constantly monitoring the external and internal environments to form down and dirty impressions. It probes for information important to survival and reproduction and will calmly take care of routine business until it detects a threat or an opportunity related to both. Then it mobilizes system two, the executive suite, to make a more concrete decision. The challenge arises from this dynamic interplay between the two systems. Due to the extraordinary amount of information system one processes, it makes a ton of assumptions and takes shortcuts to save precious time and energy. If a lion had you in his gaze, 
You don't have time to sit down and build a decision matrix. You just act from system one or else. System one is inherently lazy, though, saving most of its energy for a real crisis, which happened rather routinely in our paleo past. But in our modern world, we end up with a plethora of hair-triggered bias responses that turn out to be dead wrong after the fact. The shortcuts and guesses made sense in the old days when we had to detect and defend against that lion or capture the heart of the wild woman in the next village. But in today's world, it causes nothing but trouble. Consider the bias called the priming effect, wherein the brain will associate new, wherein the brain will associate new information to the closest other idea, which then primes your answer. The priming effect is what leads to common errors and misperception called confirmation bias. A simple example Kahneman provides is if you have recently seen or heard the word eat, you are more likely to complete the word fragment S-O blank P as soup. However, if you just got out of the bath, you'd be primed to read that word fragment as soap. Extrapolate that to the myriad of everyday decisions we make or to multi-million dollar business deals and you can see the problem. Kahneman describes an experiment in a company kitchen with an honesty box to pay for coffee. They put a picture of a flower pot in the room, and then later they changed that out with a picture of eyes. The employees contributed almost three times as much when the eyes were watching due to that priming effect. And consider this sentence, Anne approached the bank. If you're a city dweller, you likely conjured an image of Anne walking toward an ATM. But if you're a river guide, you'd be more likely to think that Anne had glided up to the riverbank in her kayak. And when you buy a red Mazda, isn't it amazing how your mind confirms that practically everyone else suddenly owns a red car and now there's twice as many Mazdas on the road? How can we possibly trust our brains when this type of gross misinterpretation is going on all the time? Are you great at first impressions? Bull, first impressions are mostly wrong. And where else do you jump to biased conclusions? System one works only with the information that it has ready access to. When evaluating people, system one is inclined to stereotype because if no other information is available, that's the only pathway it has to conjure an instant impression. As mentioned, this tricky shortcut gave us an edge in the past, but that edge is long dulled. Psychologist Solomon Ash asked subjects to say what they thought of two hypothetical characters, Alan and Ben. Here's the descriptions of the two. Alan. He's intelligent, industrious, impulsive, critical, stubborn, and envious. Ben. Ben is envious, stubborn, critical, impulsive, industrious, and intelligent. As you no doubt notice, the descriptors are identical, but for their order. The study sub subjects consistently rated Alan favorable to Ben because their initial traits in the list impacted their first impressions. The halo effect where you transfer a trait such as good looks or height into character or onto character with no other evidence to support the notion is a man, another manifestation of this priming effect. Sales professionals are familiar with another mind trick called framing. How information is framed affects how it's processed. My neighbor, Orrin Claff, in his best-selling book, Pitch Anything, teaches the use of framing to help entrepreneurs pitch for financing. They have great success by showing how to frame negotiations and break pre-established frames to put them in their favor for an edge. Sounds all very Machiavellian, and I'm 100% certain that I've fallen for that trick myself. Another example of how system one distorts system two thinking is loss aversion. 
another that I have had painful experiences with, especially during the 2001.com bust. The system one mammalian brain will see losses as a threat and cause us to avoid them at the expense of a gain. After all, threats are more urgent than opportunities. Consider this. You're offered a gamble on the toss of a coin. If the coin toss shows tails, you lose 100 bucks. But if the coin toss shows heads, you win 150. Is this gamble attractive? Would you accept it? Rationally, it's a good gamble because the expected value is positive. But most people would reject this gamble because the brain will seize on the threat of losing $100 and ignore the possible gain of $150. This loss aversion comes into play in all forms of negotiation. Since losses are felt more keenly than gains, the side that stands to lose the most will fight harder against it than the other side fights for it. It's also prevalent when it comes to cutting investment losses, which is why we tend to hold on to a losing stock. Selling a losing stock actualizes that loss, while selling a winning stock actualizes a gain. System one thinking will favor the latter over the former. The answer is whole mind thinking, which cuts through the bias and slows down internal time so you can think more clearly. Then we can employ mental models to streamline our decision processes, which we're going to discuss later. Meditation practice, training the zookeeper. Doesn't it make sense that these animals in your head could use a zookeeper to keep them in line and working together? I mean, who does that job? Well, I recommend we create a job description for metacognitive skills and to think about your thinking. Then we hire the witness, your witness. Your witness is awareness itself, viewing the machinations of the entire brain from its lofty position. The experience of whole mind is from the perspective of the witness and where all aspects of the brain are optimized and working in concert. This is a very different perspective than thinking of mind as thought, content, and emotional energy. It's the difference between viewing mind as content versus context. Content would be like clouds in the sky, whereas context would be the sky itself. Another great analogy is that your thoughts or content are like waves in the ocean, while your witness or context is the ocean. And here's another. The wind would be content or thoughts, while the air or space itself is context or your witness. So, as alluded to at the start of this chapter, the prevailing Western view reduces the mind to the brain's patterns of syntactical wiring and chemical releases and electrical firings, and then they call that thought. The experience of mind certainly has chemical and electrical correlates in the brain, but it's a mistake to define awareness and witnessing to be the result of merely the brain's electrochemical signaling, even though those signals can impact the quality of thinking that does occur. In my many years of meditation practice, I found that awareness, what I call context or witnessing, is always present and provides the very ground from which thought and emotional content arises. It's timeless, boundless, and beyond the ego's self-expression. The nature of pure awareness has been fiercely debated by spiritual traditions for thousands of years. We don't need to debate it here. Rather, we want to experience it to know it's true. In that vein, Whole mind practice is to train to operate from the perspective of pure awareness as opposed to from the perspective of thought. This shift needs to be experienced. Thinking and talking about it doesn't get you there because you're trying to understand it from the perspective of egoic form. Awareness or witnessing is beyond ego form, but includes them. You have to get out of the bottle to read the label. You must train your zookeeper using effective meditative practices and surrender your ego moment to moment to the witness. This practice of whole mind thinking is liberating for several reasons. 
First, it connects us to all other beings as well as to a higher power, universal intelligence or God or whatever you want to call it. Second, the proof is in that your mind, independent of body, threads through many lifetimes and is energized by the forces of karma. Karma is the buildup of mind energy caused by actions and thought patterns in a lifetime, which will then determine the potential and direction of the next. And third, because karma also causes the mind to come pre-energized with a unique calling in life, which we call Dharma from the Buddhist tradition, so that you can learn the appropriate lessons and to continue your evolution. If the Eastern mystics are to be believed and quantum science is proving them right, then this is more proof that mind transcends the brain, yet depends upon it in this material realm. Meditation practice allows you to take control of the thinker and to train it to take a back seat to the witness. Then your witness becomes a zookeeper and directs the activities of the mind and brain. As mentioned several times already, in our Western culture, we identify almost exclusively with thoughts as being the main thing. And the ego thinker does not give up its lofty position easily. The neocortex really is like a wild monkey, powerful and brimming with potential. But identification with your thinking alone will lead to remarkably unproductive distraction and restlessly running from pain while chasing pleasure, all the while resisting any attempt to tame it. Over the ages, many martial artists, yogis, and religious mystics did learn to tame this monkey mind through concentration and meditation practices. They learned to operate from their witnessing self while also being able to focus their thinking minds with precision on a selected subject or object of attention. The experience of operating from the witnessing mind are not unlike a peak experience in a flow state. These moments of flow occur when you're performing without thinking. In a challenging moment requiring laser-like intensity, the mind can suddenly shift from thought to the witness, causing the experience of time to collapse to just now. The neocortex is so focused on the object of attention that other thoughts are forced out, allowing the unfettered direct perception of the witness to target the object or action. In these states, the thought constructs of time and space loosen their grip. Witness meditation will lead to the ability to activate flow state at will but it takes time to develop that capacity. When your training takes hold, though, the animals that have been running amok in your mind will line up to support you instead, fight, instead of fighting against you. The training will help you think faster and better, migrating your subconscious biases away from negative reaction and conditioning to positive responsive attention. Simultaneously, it will improve your memory, improve your ability to use your imagination and visualization skills, and lead to direct perception, allowing for vastly better decision-making and peace of mind. Paths to Mastery. Thought leader Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, said that flow comes from deep expertise in an area that one is passionate about and willing to spend a ton of time mastering. He said over 10,000 hours. Gladwell tells us that those who master skill at that level are able to respond intuitively and spontaneously to any complex situation. The chess moves flow and creativity flows with little or no active thought. Similarly, like a seal or a firefighter might have a sudden urge to escape a burning house or avoid an IED because they sense impending danger intuitively. Their pattern recognition system one mind has picked it up. They don't have to think about it. 
Gladwell posits that this level of mind power comes from the intersection of deep knowledge, experience, and presence. Based upon what we've learned about the whole mind in this chapter, we can assert that deep practice of a skiller or a profession creates complex patterns in system one, which then connect to nuanced cues in the environment. System one mind then, when it gets that environmental cue, cues the neocortex or system two mind to make a more advantageous decision. This is seen by observers as creative brilliance. As mentioned, Gladwell claimed that this level of mind power takes years to hone, 10,000 hours worth of practice. But here's the catch. His assertions are based on training an outer skill with an untrained mind. This is slow learning. We can greatly accelerate learning when we train to think and learn with a whole mind. When we actively engage in training the whole body-mind system, rather than allowing mental development to be shaped gradually or one-dimensionally, as in skill-based training, then we can access genius-level thinking easily and learn faster. Scientific validation of, validation of the art of super-learning is proving this theory. There are several paths to mastery that we can follow, and an unbeatable mind, we teach them all and recommend we integrate them. First is the path of the mind. The tools we use for the path of the mind include box breathing for arousal control and to balance your body and brain. And then continuing that box breathing practice to develop deep concentration and mental power. Next, using your mind to focus your attention, using concentration training to focus your attention and to develop the skill of attention control using the WIRM process, Worm, witness, interdict, redirect, and maintain. Next, shifting your mind's perspective away from thinking to witnessing, as we just discussed earlier, and developing mindful awareness from the perspective of the witness of the thoughts and emotional patterns that are driving your behavior. And identifying negative and useless patterns and loops using insight meditation or mindful awareness, which will clear up shadow and biases so you can overcome negative conditioning. And last, be able to focus with intense concentration power on your singular mission or task without thinking for long periods of time. The second is the path of heart. The path of heart is really through devotion, practicing compassion, peacefulness, acceptance, forgiveness, love, and opening your heart. Also developing deep listening skills and gaining the perspective of others so you can understand more and feel more connected. And then third, moving up through stages of growth beyond the ego and ethnocentrism until firmly rooted in the world-centric point of view with a heart open and having care and compassion for all beings. And fourth, experiencing the unity of all things and the interconnectedness of the earth and humans. The third path is a path of service committing to discovering or uncovering your calling in life, developing a mission to serve others and humanity that aligns with this calling and dedicating every day, every act, and ultimately every moment to your higher power and in service to humanity. Any one of these paths is sufficient to achieve self-mastery in selfless service. Your personality would determine which one is your dominant practice. I believe that adopting and committing to all three together in an integrated fashion leads to accelerated growth. That's my recommendation. For instance, 
Commit to mastering the mind using the whole, to use whole mind. Focus on a task you love, like music, art, woodwork, writing, meditation for at least 10,000 hours without thinking of anything else when you're doing it. Then throw your entire heart and being into your work. Love and care for yourself, all others, and the earth deeply. And dedicate your work, your life, and your actions to your higher power and to humanity. The combination of these three paths is an epic path to adopt. I will go deeper into the nuances of these practices in my next book, Uncommon, which is the third book in this Unbeatable Mind series. However, know that until you seriously commit to this work, you're going to continue to remain at risk of all your mental traps and biases. And even if you get good at seeing bias, emotional boo or background of obviousness shadow can cause you to make flawed interpretations. Therefore, while you're engaged in your own path to mastery, it's important to rely on support to make better decisions. A coach and a mentor are valuable support, as is a team of trusting and transparent teammates who are willing to call out biased or poor thinking. In the SEALs, we safeguard against bias and reactionary thinking that way, and also rely, by relying on some decision tools. Those tools provide an insurance policy against the brain's zoo tricks and traps, so the team can stay radically focused on the right things at the right time for the right reasons. Next time in the next chapter, we're going to use this newfound skills of focusing and positivity to transform your vision for your future. We're going to ask empowering questions and come up with answers like what's your why? Where are you headed once you understand it? What is it that you want out of your brief time here? And how do you want to be remembered? As you develop witnessing and focusing skills, if you're heading in the wrong direction, you might just get to the wrong destination even faster. And what happens then? Well, more suffering. So let's avoid that. All right, folks. Thanks very much for listening. That is chapter two of the book Unbeatable, due out early 2020, one, 2021. And um, I'll continue this series next time. Till then, stay focused. Hoo-yah. Divine out.